1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and
0: welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson from the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Martin K. Dimitrov. Martin is a professor of political science at Tulane University. His books include Piracy in the State, the Politics of Intellectual Property Rights in China, Why Communism Did Not Collapse, Understanding Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Asia and Europe, and a book in Bulgarian, I believe, on the Politics of Socialist Consumption. His latest book, which we'll be discussing today, is called Dictatorship and Information, Authoritarian Regime Resilience in Communist Europe and China. So full disclosure, uh, Martin is an old friend who was in, if I remember correctly, my very first graduate level course on Chinese politics at Stanford uh, taught by Gene Oi. Um, And Martin's research and the reading his research and the conversations I've had with him about it have uh, been crucial for me in developing and sharpening a lot of my own Ideas about the role of information in authoritarian regimes. So I've been really excited to see his uh, his book finally come out, uh, summarizing and, and you know culminating a, a very long um,
2: multi-country research endeavor for him. So Martin, welcome, Peter. Peter, thank you for for having me. It's it's a great pleasure to uh, join you on this podcast and uh, to reminisce uh, indeed about um, uh, the long time that we have known each other and uh, thought about chinese politics and about information problems in china and in other autocracies uh, together
0: um so yeah so let's let's say what why information matters because you know when you're thinking about information and authoritarianism you know i think the the typical american's reference point is probably some combination of orwell's 1984 and the other dystopian movies they've seen since then, with some kind of secret police spying on everything you do, and they arrest you if you ever read a word against the regime. Um, so, you know, in that context, information seems like a problem for the citizens in that regime because they have no privacy. But not so much for the dictatorship, which kind of comes across as very, as almost all knowing. Um, but that's not really how it goes in in real life. So, so tell us why is information an issue for for autocrats? <laughs>
2: Yes. Thank you, Peter. Um, This is the um, central question that uh, the book engages with, and it's an important question in the literature on autocracies and the information problems that emerge in autocracies. Uh, The literature has argued that in authoritarian settings, citizens have an incentive to misrepresent uh, their support for the regime. In fact, they pretend to support the regime. They behave as if they support the regime, but in fact, they are opposed to the regime. And this creates a problem for authoritarian leaders, the literature has told us, because they don't have reliable mechanisms for assessing the level of support and opposition that they face from society, which then leads to the emergence of sudden coups and revolutions. And what I argue in the book is that indeed for some types of regimes, this is an insurmountable problem. But the book focuses in particular on one subtype of autocracies, uh, namely the communist regimes. And the argument there is that over time, communist regimes develop sophisticated mechanisms for assessing levels of popular discontent which um, enable the collection and transmission of accurate information to regime insiders. And then these regime insiders under specific conditions are able to act on the information that they have. So um, this information problem, in other words, according to my book at least, can be solved. So why why would you say people have
0: misread that? So Timur Karan, I think, was probably the most influential in bringing this idea out that uh, the whole you know Eastern European revolutions were uh, were sudden and you know they certainly were a surprise to those of us in the West. Even people who had confidence in you know Western democracy and whatnot as being the the ideal system that everyone might want didn't expect to uh, see communism fall so uh, so suddenly. So. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I think that's the main motivation for his his argument that in fact, nobody knew, you know, how much discontent there was. And then once one person spoke up, everyone else kind of one after the other raises their hand and then the regime falls. So, but you're saying it's not, not that's not really an accurate characterization of uh, the, the end of communism in Eastern Europe?
2: Correct. Um, so when Timur Koran developed this argument, which happened very shortly after the collapse of communist regimes in Europe... Um, scholars lacked access to firsthand internal information that regime insiders uh, were able to consult. They lacked access to archives. And when one um, goes into these archives, which are now largely available, although availability varies across countries. But when one goes to the archives, one finds that, in fact, a massive amount of information about popular discontent was collected by the Communist Party, by state security, by journalists who were not writing for the public media, but for internal consumption. And this information did focus on levels of popular discontent and it was transmitted upward to uh, regime uh, insiders. So, in fact, uh, regime insiders had abundant information about levels of popular discontent in Eastern Europe. So
0: then, why did the regimes fall? Well, we'll talk more about... um, You've you've brought up a couple of things, I guess. So, so first of all, the the extensive archival research you've done, so we'll we'll come back to that. Um, But uh, what is... Um. Yeah, uh, why couldn't they, if they knew, you know, if they had the information they needed, why couldn't they respond to it effectively and maintain power?
2: Right, because my argument is that information is not sufficient to prevent um, regime collapse in the end. Um, the way that I understand communist regimes is that they evolve over time. So, in the initial period after the establishment of a communist regime, there is very little, very little information. And what the lack of information leads to is haphazard and um, um, haphazard repression that that is, um, you know, very high levels of of, of, of of the use of brute force and haphazard repression. Over mm-hmm. time, the available information increases. And then these regimes reach um, the golden period of their existence where they have sufficient information to anticipate discontent before it is uh, publicly expressed and to counteract the transformation of what I call latent discontent into overt discontent through the strategic redistribution of concessions and through selective repression. But then towards the end of the communist regimes, there's still abundant information about levels of discontent, but the capacity to redistribute declines. And at the same time, because discontent is so widely spread, it is uh, virtually impossible to use repression to stave it off. So the regimes at the end are um, transforming themselves into some other entity um, uh, with uh, access to to this information about increasing levels of discontent. And the way that I read 89 in in Eastern Europe is that this information was available not just to the dictator, but also to his closest circle of, um, uh, well, to the Politburo. So to his closest associates. And it was those associates who used the available information to plot um, palace coups. Uh, Of course, there were also protests beforehand, but the massive number of protests tend to happen after this initial regime change in Eastern Europe. We oftentimes tend to compress the events into 89, into this magic fall of the wall uh, in East Berlin. But even Mm -hmm. even in in Berlin, the wall falls a full month after the removal of Honecker, and the person who removes him is the head of the state security system um, in in, in East um, uh, Germany. So, in fact, the best and Person in in all of East Germany and another communist. So there is that initial um, moment when another communist government of so-called reformists and softliners, although headed by the head of state security, um, takes over East Germany, and then eventually the events take the shape that that we remember uh, in retrospect with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the massive protests, where the largest protests are in fact after the removal of Honecker from office, not before. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that sometimes in our efforts, especially in cross-national studies to kind of codify and categorize everything, there's kind of been a tendency to lump lump things into, you know, leaders who are replaced by a coup and leaders who are replaced by a mass movement. But I think your point is that, you know, leader, a coup may be anticipating mass movement. It may also, you know, to an extent, facilitate or prompt the mass movement, um, or, or in other cases, take advantage of it. So the, the complementarities between the two are, are, uh, much more complex than simply saying, like either you were taken out by your by your allies or your compatriots, or you were taken out by a mass uprising.
2: Yes, yes, this is correct. The events of 1989 are much more complex than what we remember, especially given that more than three decades have elapsed since um, those um, those months. So. Um all right so
0: so now let's talk more about uh you know some of the solutions that, that dictators did use so you said um that so in fact they did know what's going on um how do they how do they find this out because the, the you know the back, back story is that you know if, if everyone's living in fear then they shouldn't you know be willing to you know openly express their discontent they should be hiding out for fear of being perceived as being complaining or anti-regime so uh, how do you how do you find out this this uh, latent discontent?
2: Well thank you for this question Peter because for me the process of finding out how communist regimes found out was this incredible intellectual adventure because it turned out that there's so many different systems and uh, of course they vary over time and across countries so uh, documenting or in fact excavating uh, these systems in the first place documenting their existence and 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 figuring out how they, they change over time uh, has been a lot of fun. Um, But um, in terms of what the systems are, there are certain conditions under which the citizens of authoritarian regimes will voluntarily reveal information to the government. They do that when they complain and these complaints are requests for certain services and goods from from the regime. So in those circumstances, citizens are honest about what they want. Um, So they want jobs or they want their pensions to be paid on time or their salaries. Um, They want um, their land not to be taken away from them. They want their houses not to be illegally uh, demolished. So on an individual level, these complaints are perhaps not very informative, but when they're aggregated, they reveal to the government trends in uh, popular uh, dissatisfaction. The government, of course, has numerous other mechanisms for involuntary collection of information. Um, They monitor individuals, there are various types of surveillance. Um, They um, track rumors, they track jokes, and I have at least one instance where an authoritarian regime attract the dreams of its citizens. Um, so the range of mechanisms is wide, and these are all from the pre-digital era. And of course, uh, with the rise of the internet, we have all of the um, electronic um, surveillance uh, that that is practiced by these surviving uh, communist regimes. But one of the points in the book is that Uh, Surveillance of citizens did not start with the internet, uh, both in China and in other communist regimes. These systems emerged a long time before the 21st um, century. And in fact, um, they they developed into very sophisticated um, uh, systems for uh, the extraction
1: of uh,
2: very nuanced information about uh, what people were unhappy about.
0: So your research, uh, you focus, um, well, you have actually uh, ranged over a number of different countries with different collaborators at times, um, but in this, uh, in the book, you focus on your two areas of specialty, Bulgaria, which is where you were born, and China, which has been the other major focus of your, your academic research. Um, so. Uh, tell us about the the research that you that you did you've sort of alluded to it what what are these archives and what kinds of things uh, were you able to find out um, especially also in China because Bulgaria it's post communist so there's I guess more accessible but China is still very closed off for research access
2: yes so let me start with Bulgaria which is indeed the uh, more open um, uh, case although even there you um, the archives are incomplete, um, and you know one thing that um, uh, one realizes when working with these archival materials, materials is that there is no archive that is pristine. And, you know, archives evolve over time, documents get lost, they get, mis- get they get misfiled, they get strategically destroyed. There are these curious fires that emerge in the archives in both uh, East Germany, um, right after 89, but also in Bulgaria in 1990. Um, but um, despite um, the normal... Uh, loss of archival materials and then the willful destruction, Um, huge amounts of um, state security, Communist Party, and internal journalistic materials survive uh, in in, in the case of of Bulgaria. And um, what one um, can read is documents that were prepared for the highest levels of the uh, Communist Party leadership, including for the number one uh, individual in, in the party, for the general secretary. Um, in China, the situation is a little uh, different. In fact, it's um, substantially different. And I'll talk about that in, in, in a second. But, but in the book, there is a very long chapter on, on scope conditions uh, that is based on um, archival research that I did with Soviet um, East German in Cuban materials, and then I had other types of autocracies, so Taiwan comes up. So there, there were, I mean, I, I did go to, to other archives, but indeed, you're correct that the Bulgarian and the Chinese cases are the main cases for the book. In the case of China, um, of course, the situation has changed substantially in the last few years, uh, but uh, there was um, reasonably good archival access 10 years ago, especially in places like Shanghai. Uh, there were also um, um, fantastic collections and in, in libraries um, in China, also in Shanghai, but also the National Library in Beijing. And then uh, Hong Kong uh, 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 has uh, been uh, an important place. Uh, for conducting uh, research because um, they have um, unique and, and hard to find uh, materials, um, as do some major uh, American uh, university libraries that have um, acquired uh, these um, Chinese um, documents. So, um, it turned out that uh, with um, enough patience, uh, one could, in fact, locate um, um, Chinese Equivalents to uh, most of the um, East European uh, materials, so um, the, um, the these these materials allow um, um, allowed me to uh, trace the uh, evolution of of the party um, state security and internal journalism uh, information collection systems in in the case of China um, as well.
0: So, um, so based on this, you you mentioned um, in your uh, in your sort of overall, you know, trying to characterize this, you said there's there's three main uh, institutions that um, that participate in this information gathering: the security apparatus, the party, and the media. Could you could you elaborate on like what are their different different tools that each of them uses and what their what their role is in the overall system to kind of funneling uh, this information to to the top leader?
2: Absolutely. Yes, I'll be happy to. So uh, for me, the most surprising aspect of um, the information gathering uh, um, infrastructure and in communist regimes was the internal journalism system, which, of course, um, those who have studied journalism uh, in China, including you, um, have, have talked about. Um, but um, the extent of the system and its evolution over time was extremely interesting uh, for me to, to evaluate. And in that case, um, I did use um, some um, highly classified um, internal um, journalistic bulletins produced by the Xinhua News Agency and, and by other entities that generate such materials for the the use of the leadership um, in in China. Um, so the fact that you have an entire um, set of um, journalism in an authoritarian context that never sees the public press um, um, is, um, is is an interesting um, aspect of, of the system. And for me, the revelation was the um, um, extent of critical news that one could find um, in these um, internal uh, uh, media uh, that were meant for, for regime insiders. Um, the other two systems, um, the security apparatus, as one might expect, uh, focuses uh, primarily on public um, monitoring overt discontent, um, various types of oppositional activities in in, in communist regimes, and it operates, as we all know, through full-time employees and then part-time informants. Um, So the the materials that I consulted allowed me to to collect information on the extent of the size, uh, rather, of the uh, full-time operatives and the part-time informants uh, in in several uh, communist regimes. and then the party is, um, collecting and both information on citizen complaints so this is the information that is voluntarily transmitted to it and then it develops um, multiple avenues for involuntary information uh, collection so the communist party is a surveillance machine uh, among among its other functions Um, so uh, full time party cadres um, evaluate uh, the local situation um, and and this is the case both in China and in Eastern Europe and they produce um, situation reports that then travel up the chain. So one of the arguments in the book is that there are these multiple systems that are producing oftentimes similar information. And this redundancy is by design um, because, of course, um, there are problems. That political scientists have highlighted that if you rely only on a single system, their agency problems, information might not be disclosed. And then the hope of regime insiders um, has been that when they create multiple systems for the collection of information, this redundancy will eventually allow for accurate information to travel up to the top.
0: So in the in the internal media, what kind of, what are the reports look like that you've seen? Are they like, you know, uh, are they like, like, more like briefings or are they, you know, do they do things like investigative journalism? Like, you know, here I found out that there was, uh, you know, a, a, a poison leak into this river or that there was... Uh, um, you know, the other, other cases like the AIDS villages, sort of one dramatic case or the brick kiln slaves, um, that were uncovered in China by investigative journalists, were these things, are, are there things of similar, you know, specificity and magnitude being, uh, reported, uh, in addition to this through the internal media?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, in fact, in, in, um, almost, I mean, because there've been not so many, uh, important cases of investigative journalism, um in in almost every case we can trace it to the internal media first. So it was reported internally, and then eventually it was reported in the official media through investigative journalism. So the internal media are investigative by design, which doesn't mean that all they contain is investigative reports. They also contain um, reports from news agencies that for various reasons should not make it into the official media. So it's it's a mix of, of content um, in, between the investigative reporting and simply um, re-reporting official news that should not make it into the publicly uh, available uh, news outlets. Um, in terms of the format, um, the closest equivalent that I can think of between uh, the Chinese internal media um, and something that is more familiar to a Western audience is the President's Daily Brief. So the President's Daily Brief is in the form of a newspaper before it started being delivered on digitally on a tablet, and um, it, it it's a newspaper that ranges in length, uh, but based on what we know about it and the few copies that have been declassified, it's between a dozen to seven dozen uh, pages, the length of the one uh, internal news bulletin that I systematically tracked over a 16 year period, which was meant for uh, Politburo members in China, Nebu Cangkao is is the name, um, uh, was again from typically a dozen uh, pages to about 64 pages in, in some instances. And it was issued six times a week. So, almost daily. Um, so, So these internal news bulletins look like newspapers, except they have a very limited circulation to the top leadership.
1: slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off
0: okay so um so you're talking about a lot of you know these internal uh sources of information uh information gathering um and uh you know i and and many others have uh, argued um since the early 2000s made the case that um you know china um was overcoming some of these information problems in a perhaps risky way by allowing things like you know partially free elections at the village level, or, uh, you know, a little bit of competition at at higher levels of the legislature, uh, or permitting, uh, you know, some investigative journalism by the, by the privatized media, um, uh, tolerating protests, you know, not at least not smashing them, sometimes rewarding them, things like that. Um, but your argument is that, uh, probably is not that important. How would you summarize your your uh, differentiation from that uh, that literature?
2: Right. Um, In terms of where I stand on that literature, um, and you are a key contributor to that literature, is that I agree that um, protests, competitive elections, um, certain types of media content um, transmit information Um, vertically um, to leaders of the system. They transmit information upwards. But the problem with those avenues is that they also transmit information horizontally. So in your own work, you have highlighted that um, distinction between vertical and horizontal. And from my point of view, the concern that the regime has is about that horizontal uh, spread of information where other discontented citizens can find out how widely shared their discontent is. And then we get into a Quran or Loman uh, model of how uh, coordination um, emerges. So um, over time, At least that's my sense, and that comes up in in one of the chapters. Um, The use of these mechanisms has declined, and the modal response to protests um, under the current administration, under Xi Jinping, is not accommodation. It is uh, repression or at least that's what a student of mine and I uh, show when we analyzed a a big data set of 65,000 protests. So um, especially um, with the rise of Digital uh, media which create an additional channel for monitoring uh, discontent Uh, my senses and my argument in the book is that those traditional mechanisms for collection of information which allow uh, regime insiders to collect information um, um, vertically uh, without allowing it to spread horizontally. They have been uh, valued uh, even more. Um, so um, complaints are, are very important. The concern for the regime is that they are declining because complaint effectiveness in the Chinese context is very low. And in fact, they're more of um, the phenomena that um, you and others have talked about. There are more protests because complaining is, is not particularly successful. Uh, but my sense is that, especially in the last decade, the regime uh, is not accommodating uh, of, of, um, of protests because it is concerned uh, about their capacity to uh, compromise stability maintenance. And stability maintenance has been elevated into this top regime concern.
0: Yeah, I think I guess there's sort of competing effects. You're saying there's there's more protests because the 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 purely vertical channel where you know you don't make a fuss publicly but you just, you know, place your request and say here's my problem, can you fix it? That's not there's not enough responsiveness there, so they're driven to protest. But unlike maybe and you know, it was never it was never safe to protest, but like in the 90s, 2000s maybe if you protested the right way, Phrase, phrase things as being purely local, not part of a bigger issue, not political at all, then maybe you could expect to get some kind of uh, resolution, maybe after they sent in the thugs to beat up your, your town, but then so they do something, you know, so it's kind of, it's, it's a cost benefits kind of trade off there. Um, that's a, a rough one. Um, but yeah,
2: now that, I think that's correct, that the 90s changed, were different. Yeah. The 90s were a very different decade. And probably the early aughts as well. I mean, one of the questions is when exactly did things start changing? I think it's around 2003, 2004. But but yes, I mean, the 90s for sure um, appear to have been a period when there was significantly greater protest toleration. And also the media landscape looked very different from what it looks today. I mean, there there were a lot of bold um, journalistic exposés in the publicly available media that Seem to have disappeared um, in um, certainly in the last decade, but I think a little bit um, um, earlier than that. Um, and you know what's interesting to me is you know how different the um, East European situation is from from the Chinese, where first there was a significantly higher number of complaints, and there was also much greater responsiveness to the issues that were raised in these complaints, and there were very 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 few protests. Um, so that the 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 the, the two parts of the communist world even though they had institutions that were largely similar emerge as um being well they diverge over time um, in in terms of the institutional development
0: yeah and then so yeah so i guess maybe china's never really had the full institutional capacity to to have the kind of full service situation that that, uh, eastern european communists could manage
2: Yeah, it's extremely interesting because of course, China has the most sophisticated surveillance infrastructure of any communist regime ever extant. It can monitor all all sorts of things. And of course, there's this very high density of cameras on on the streets in China. Um, Digital media are pervasively monitored. But what it didn't develop was the extent of voluntary transmission of information that the East European regimes had. And my argument is that what what voluntary information transmission gives you is the capacity to practice a softer type of authoritarian rule, because you develop, you being the communist regime. An ability to evaluate discontent when it is still at an embryonic stage and to engage in, in in the redistributive measures that are needed in order to prevent it from uh, being transformed into overt discontent. So, that's um, the main reason why Eastern Europe didn't have the level of protest activity that China had. So, especially when it comes to this voluntary provision, um, my argument in the book is that China did not develop the um, systems that Eastern Europe had. And then the question is, why did this happen? My argument is that in Eastern Europe, there was what scholars have called a social contract a socialist social contract so it's qualified and the idea behind this concept is that citizens will not rebel they will remain quiescent as long as the regime is able to satisfy their material needs um, and in china for complex reasons that have to do in part with the Great Leap forward and the cultural revolution but also with the demographic demographics of china and the very small number of individuals who lived in, in urban areas where these socialist social contracts tend to initially emerge and only later on do they spread to the rural areas um, china had um, a much more restrictive um, social contract. So there was much, there was a lot less than the state promised to citizens, before the reform and openness period uh, began, and under reform and openness, uh, the contract became uh, even even more restricted. So, um, from my point of view, this is the reason why uh, there have been so few complaints, comparatively speaking, in the Chinese case when we compare it to Eastern Europe, uh, and also why regime responsiveness has been so low, which then leads to the protests that you and others have have studied. And you know, China has a lot of those, as we know.
0: Right. Although that's always hard to, to track. Uh, so have you seen, and I, I think I didn't see this in your book. Do you have any, do, do we have any good sense of whether it's increasing or decreasing as a trend since 2012? Cause you know, one, one argument would be, you know, if, if they're responding more aggressively to protests and there's been a decline in kind of, uh, receptiveness, you know, to, um, to that as a way of expressing uh, group's needs, then that, that might make for fewer few of them, right? There's no point in going out if you really know for sure there's just going to be bashing of heads and arrests and, and no one's going to get anything out of it.
2: Correct. And the data that I report in uh, Chapter 8, they indicate that, in fact, protests appear to have declined. So it's precisely the logic that you articulated, Peter. But um, I, I am not sure whether we can trust the data on this. Um, As you know, uh, data on protests are extremely sensitive. um, And those are not official statistics. They come from scholarly analysis. I mean, scholarly analysis in Chinese. um, So presumably, These scholars have access to official documents, but but this is it's a minefield. You know, how do we count protests and um, what is the long time trend? So, if we trust the numbers that I report in chapter eight on the volume of protests in the last decade, they have indeed declined as uh, regime response has become uh, more. Severe uh, or less accommodating to this protest activity. However, even with this decline, they're orders of magnitude greater than they were in Eastern Europe under mm. communism. So China still has a, a very high level of protest activity. Okay.
0: Okay, so so this isn't the central thrust of your book, but you know your 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 point is it's great to have information, but obviously if you don't have the resources to you know uh, satisfy the groups based on information you gather, then you're still there's still going to be discontent, and, and eventually you may fall. Um, why why was it that? what was it in Eastern Europe that happened uh, in terms of those resources? Cause my understanding is they were kind of maybe stagnating and not really growing, you know, and certainly not, was it about, was it about sort of rising expectations compared to uh, what people could see across the borders um, in the West? And so, you know, people were as well off as they'd been 20 years ago, but they could see they, they could expect something better or, or what, how did it all fall apart for them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a great question, Peter, because on the face of it, uh, Eastern Europe experiences much greater uh, economic problems after the collapse of communism than it does before. So it's mm-hmm. all relative. It's about relative expectations. It is about this competition with the West that Eastern Europe engaged in with the idea that we can give more to our citizens than the West can because we have socialized medicine, education is free, there's job security. And And, you know, everybody gets an apartment, all these wonderful things, of course, every single one of low quality. Um, And in the 1950s and perhaps maybe even into the early 60s, it wasn't clear in in some of these instances um, whether Eastern Europe, in fact wouldn't end up uh, being more successful economically, because some countries which are currently in the West at the time were highly underdeveloped, now take Greece as an example, or Portugal or Spain, they were relatively poor in terms of per capita income. And of course, East Germany and Czechoslovakia were quite rich on a per capita basis. But then um, certainly by the 1970s, especially in the East and West German competition, it's it's quite obvious uh, that West Germany... Uh, that East Germany cannot win uh, with West Germany. Um, and what makes the situation worse is that uh, West German TV is widely consumed in, in Eastern mm-hmm. Europe, with one exception because of the topography of the country. Um, and then East Germans on a daily basis are able to do precisely what, what you mentioned. They can see how much better the um the, the the West Germans live. So East Germans see that um, uh, by consuming uh, West German TV. Um, and similar dynamics can be traced throughout the Eastern bloc. So it was about these expectations that the regime built about the ongoing improvement in standards of living. And by the 1980s, the capacity of the regime to ensure a steady improvement in standards of living stops. So on the face of it, there is no massive economic crisis, but economic growth greatly declines. Um, Soviet um, subsidies are withdrawn. Um, these Eastern European countries have to take out uh, more and more loans from Western banks, and they become increasingly incapable of servicing uh, of servicing these loans. So um, there is um, a sense of disenchantment among the citizenry, uh, which is which translates into fewer complaints. I mean, for me, this was one of those early archival discoveries that when people are less happy, they complain less and then they protest more, of course. Um, So people withdraw from the complaint system, they go out into the street. Um, And one aspect is this economic um, aspect of of the problem. Another one is that Eastern Europe has the um, Helsinki process, uh, which guarantees, um, at least on paper, but then it turns out that it has some practical implication as well. It guarantees the freedom freedom of the movement of people and ideas. Um, So um, there is... um, Uh, A a lot of uh, exchange within Europe between the East and the West, which then um, stimulates some uh, human rights groups uh, like Charter 77 in uh, in Czechoslovakia, for example. Um, So communism collapses because of a combination of these uh, economic uh, uh, reasons, but also because it is losing the war of ideas uh, with the West. Um, and it, it does not collapse because there's lack of information. That's that's what the book um, argues uh, in the context of Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm.
0: And so now, uh, picking up an earlier thread, you you were talking about you know some of the changes in China becoming uh, more repressive. So you're saying you you also uh, and there's some sort of you know I think. Two, two competing big picture explanations or, or characterizations. One is that, you know, Xi Jinping is a different guy. And so he does things differently. And in general is much more, uh, much more repressive and controlling than previous leaders. But I think um, what you're hinting at and which others I think have argued is that there were uh, indications that the, that the party might've been moving in that direction Um as a even as a collective, uh, somewhat earlier than that? Is that is that kind of where you come down on that? I mean, that, you know, drawing, drawing, I suppose the key thing is not to draw the to say where the magical turning point is, because there's never one exact turning point. But more to say, I guess, is the causal factor something, you know, in the broader environment? Uh, or was it how much do we attribute to, to one one person?
2: Yeah, this is, um, thanks, Peter. It's, this is a great question. Um, I think the process began before uh, Xi Jinping. It began at some point in the aughts, um, and Xi Jinping was a catalyst. Um, so the levels of repression increased, uh, for example, uh, if we're talking about repression. Uh, but it's not just about him. In terms of what triggered these harsher, more repressive uh, responses on the part of the government, um, you know, a lot have scholars have attributed it to the impact of the color revolutions and the concern that they might spread to China. And then, of course, in 2010, 2011, Arab Spring, um, you know, a project that I'm involved with is... um, China's ongoing attention to the lessons of the Soviet collapse. So the Soviet collapse was three decades ago, but to this day, regime insiders in China have to be reminded of the lessons of the Soviet collapse. You know, one of those lessons is the importance of maintaining ideological discipline and uh, not allowing uh, dangerous uh, foreign ideas uh, to penetrate China. So, I think, you know, one of the issues that we've talked about today is that the 1990s were this incredible um, decade uh, because that was a decade of openness. Um, there was economic openness as China was preparing to enter the World Trade Organization. There was intellectual openness. Protests were relatively tolerated. Um, the levels of complaint was actually high, which is, for me, always interesting. So, you know, there, there were protests, but there were fewer uh, protests in the 1990s than in the aughts. Um, so the 1990s was was a decade of relative openness. It was also a decade of relative uncertainty in China because China had survived 89 and it had avoided the fate of its socialist brethren in, in Eastern Europe and in Mongolia, but it didn't quite know which way to to, to move forward. But by the odds, we had a much more certain China um, and also assertive internationally. And then certainly in the past decade, um, under Xi Jinping, um, this, this process that began earlier uh, was catalyzed, and now we have a China that is even more secure um, in its um, in itself and in its capacity to project its power um, externally and also to um, maintain um, stability uh, internally and the stability maintenance unfortunately does involve uh, repressing uh, protests
0: okay well to um, let me just uh to for listeners sort of sum up the rest of what your book or the, the scope of your book uh for, because it's been kind of implicit in what we said, but um basically you're you're looking at both Bulgaria and China from the onset of com- communism, uh communist control in the 40s, um in one case by by as a result of war, in the other case as a result of a revolution, um, sort of through through, in Bulgaria's case, through the end of communism, and in China's case, uh through the present, uh, and then also um Uh, touching upon in sort of your scope conditions chapter at the end, Um, not just kind of secondary source, but actually primary source work that you've done in other countries um, like Cuba and uh, the Soviet union and so forth. Um, And uh, so, so it's, it's, it's an amazing book. Um, There's uh, a ton in here. I think it's, it's both uh, theoretically and empirically rich. Um, So uh, you know, every new chapter you turn to, it's not just sort of, and here's another bunch of stuff that happens that I found in the archive. Cause you know, it's, it's easy for, you know, people who love the archives to like get so deep in it that, that no one else cares by the time you're into the, the Nth chapter. But um, I, I really like that Martin uh, always is very good at stepping back and saying, you know, here's how this fits into the big picture, how this fits into, into my argument and uh, you know, generates theoretical implications that I think are worth considering for, anyone studying uh, really authoritarian regimes in any country. Um, so highly recommend the book. Um, it's, it's really the, the capstone of uh, more than a decade of, uh, of serious research um, that Martin's been doing that I think a few of us in the know have always been aware of, but that I think hasn't gotten the attention that it should have. So it's great to have uh, this book coming out with uh, uh, from a major press to uh, consolidate it and, and draw everyone's attention. Um, so, so with that, uh, Martin, what, what do you have, uh, what do you have coming up next? What, what's now that this one is done and you can, you can take your breath and stop worrying about the uh, typos and the footnotes. Um, what's, uh, <laughs> I, well, you, I know you'll never stop worrying about the typos and the footnotes. We never do, but, uh, what's what's the next project that you're doing?
2: Yes. Well, thank you, Peter, uh, first of all, for um, the, being so generous um, about this book. And um, before I go to the next project, I want to say uh, what a pleasure it is uh, to get to discuss my book with you, given that you have been thinking about information for, for a very long time and uh, time and writing about information for a very long time. So it's rare to have this opportunity to to discuss uh, one's book with, with a true expert. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. Now, in terms of um, the um, the next steps, I have um, finished a, a short uh, book uh, for the Cambridge University Press Elements um, series on the adaptability of the Chinese Communist Party with the emphasis being on how the party has adapted to 89, so the adaptations that have been implemented after 1989. Um, and um, I'm looking at four different adaptations and my net assessment there is that each one of them is, is stalling and uh, the future is um, there. There are question marks of course about the future, but it's not um, it's not all bright and um, and, and sunny and wonderful. So the, the Chinese communist party uh, uh, is justifiably concerned about its future. Um, The other Project that I desperately want to finish is I have a project on welfare dictatorships and how they evolve over time, and you know there China is a, a case, uh, but um, the other cases are um, uh, Cuba, uh, the Soviet Union, and East Germany. So it's different models of of welfare states, and in the Soviet case, it's Soviet, and then there is post Soviet Russia. Um, and what I'm interested about is a classical socialist welfare state and then market, uh, welfare states. Um, so, um, I, um, yes, I, I, I do have some other things that, uh, that keep me up at night, uh, in terms of, uh, footnotes and, uh, and sources and, and arguments.
0: Great. Well, um, I look forward to reading those to those as well. I think that, yeah, you, you got into a little bit, some of those issues of the sustainability of the regime, uh, in the, in the end of this book as well. So, uh, another reason for, um, We'll leave people hanging on uh, exactly what the uh, the forest systems were and why they may be falling apart. But for those of you who want to uh, get the another reason to read Martin's book, you'll you'll get the get the past uh, eighty years or however many it has been now, um, and uh, and also from that uh, uh, a very informed uh, prognostication about the future. Um, all right, so uh, we'll wrap up here. Um, thank you again very
2: much for coming on. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Peter. A real pleasure. Thank you.